Good morning. It's good to see you all. I can see you just fine, but I can't see this at all unless I put these on. It's getting old. It's not fun. It's good to see you. Um, as Phil said earlier, I grew up in this church. Um, I think pretty much from the beginning, maybe a couple of years after it started, right, Dad? One year. Um, um, I, I had the pleasure of breaking in pastors. Uh, and pastor, pastor Cooper was the first pastor I got to break in. Uh, I dated his daughter. He wasn't happy about that. Um, then Pastor Bigelow came along, and I had already gone off to college, and, but uh, Pastor Bigelow uh, got to be friends. We got to be friends. I was in Youth for Christ in Kankakee, and every once in a while we'd just get together and talk. And there were some times where I just needed someone to talk to that wasn't there. And uh, Pastor Bigelow was there for us. And um, this church has been a part of my life and, and truthfully part of my healing. Um, a few years ago, when my, my first wife passed away, uh, Phil and this church were part of my healing, and we actually had her funeral out the, in the student center, and uh, I'm, I'm just so grateful for the pleasure and the privilege I've had of growing up here and uh, be able to come back and, and share uh, what God's laying on my heart. In our church, we've been uh, going through First uh, and Second Thessalonians. If you study uh, Thessalonians, it's a, it's a beautiful book, um, both books, and one of the things that is kind of uh, an overriding theme of Thessalonians, especially in the first, first uh, book, is the coming of Christ. In every chapter, Paul talks about different aspects of the return of Christ. Uh, in two chapters, he does what I believe is the of the rapture of the church, and then in three chapters he does the when Christ returns to earth. Um, all of that is, the book is intended for us to prepare, to prepare for his coming, to prepare to live life, and part of that preparation is to understand that we as Christians have to persevere. We have to press on into the Christian life. Paul starts the letter in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians, the first four verses. And in this little scripture that a lot of people script, uh, skip over, he talks about characteristics of a healthy church. And today I want to talk about just what are some of the characteristics of a healthy church. There's not all of them, but this is a few. Actually, there's another chunk to this sermon that that you'd have to come back next week, but I won't be here. Um, one of the things we know about Jesus is that when we take him serious, he does two things in this world. And one of the things he does is he unites us, and the other is he divides. You can't be neutral with Jesus. You'll either be on one side or the other. When you trusted Jesus as your Savior, God transformed you from being of this world and put you into his kingdom, and you made, he made you his own very children. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When we accept Christ into our life, we become part of the family of God. The Holy Spirit comes into us. He seals us, as it says here, until the day of redemption. That's something that can't be taken away. But he also creates in us his inheritance. We become his children. And that's not something that's just personal for me as a child of God, but something we hold corporately that we, as we give our lives to Christ, become children of God, and because of that, we become members of the body of Christ, the church. Jesus also divides. I'm going to ask this question. I asked it in the first service, and it was like, yeah. How many of you watched The Chosen? Oh, much better, much better. One of the lines in the first season was, get used to different. Jesus is different. He came to the world and he brought a message of peace and he brought a message of joy, but he also brought a message of revolution. To do life differently. To completely upstage the traditional way of looking at who God was going to be, who the Messiah was going to be. They didn't expect a suffering Messiah, they expected a king. And they got a Messiah that came to not just lead them to victory, but to save them by dying. In John 7, 43, it says, Though, Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. People will make a decision about Jesus. They'll either believe him they will, or they won't. In this time, a lot of people did believe that he was the Messiah, but some just believed he was a prophet. Some believed that he was a teacher. Some believed he was a heretic. Some believed he was demon-possessed. Wherever Jesus went, people made a decision. And they either united with him or they were divided. Faith in Jesus unites us as believers. But faith in Jesus also separates us from the rest of the world. And it's hard for the world to understand those who truly believe because we adopt his lifestyle, which is antithetical to the lifestyle of the world. John 17, 16 says, they are not of this world. He's talking about us, even as I am not of the world. We are unique because Jesus is unique. And that's why he came, not just to get us into heaven, but so that we can make a difference in this life. Jesus came to our life to unite us, but also to divide. Because we must choose. The choosing is to follow him or not. And we need to understand with that choice, eternity hangs in the balance. There are people that you know, family and friends, who need Jesus. And our job is to be about bringing the gospel, the good news to people. 
who desperately need it. In that process, sometimes it's hard for us because life is difficult. And that's why it's so important for we as believers, especially as we consider ourselves as part of the body of Christ, to persist, to be persistent, to persevere. Paul, almost every writer in the New Testament talks about the need for perseverance, to keep going when the going gets tough. Got some pictures here. Um, this is a lady by the name of Diane Nyad, Diana Nyad, and uh, she was a long-distance swimmer. When she was 28 years old, she decided that she swim from Cuba to Florida. She tried and she failed. She tried four more times and failed four more times. Finally, on September 2nd, 2013, at the age of 64, she swam across shark-infested waters without a cage and finished her journey and ended up 110 miles later, 53 hours later, on the shores of Florida. And this is what she looks like when she came ashore. Not bad, really. When she came ashore, she had enough energy to give three messages. The first one she said is we should never, ever give up. The second one is you're never too old to chase your dreams. And the third was it looks like a solitary sport, but it's a team effort. And those three things apply to us as we serve the Lord and as we are the church we need to understand that you are never too old when it comes to ministry in the church and for the body of Christ and for the kingdom of God. There's no retirement in the Christian life. There's no retirement in sharing the, the gospel of Christ and being the church not only for the world around us but for each other. There's no retirement. We press on. We keep going. And this is a team effort. Each one of you has been given gifts and talents and skills, personality by God, and those things are all designed to be used for the building and equipping of the church and for reaching people for Jesus. God calls us to press on, to persevere, even though sometimes life is hard. And in this section of scripture in Thessalonians, Paul writes to encourage the Thessalonians, but also to encourage us to never quit, to persevere, even though there are painful trials, there are sadness, and then this church was going through a great deal of persecution because of their faith, as many are now. We need to know that God wants us to press on, to persevere. Satan also has an agenda, and his agenda is that that doesn't happen. His agenda is to do anything to keep us from being fully devoted followers of Jesus, to keep us stagnant, to keep us from moving forward. 
He has temptations that lay traps for us. He is lying to us about different things. He brings addiction into our life and to the people we care about. He's counterfeit. He counterfeits anything that God does. He's an angel of light, and he's a liar. And a lot of believers are falling for his lies. There's lots of tools he uses, and I just want to share five real quick to you. We're calling them the five deadly deeds. I'm sure I stole that from somebody. But the five deadly deeds are deception. Satan is deceiving us. One of his deceptions is simply this. I don't make a difference. But you do. Satan wants to deceive you. Part of that deception is to cause you to doubt, to doubt that God is real, that God is there, that God cares. The next one is discouragement. When you start to feel the deception and the doubt, you just don't feel like you can go forward. What's the point? I won't make a difference. Somebody else can do it. After discouragement comes diversion. There's always something I can do, like maybe go play golf on Sunday. There's always something else to do. I think the Bears are on today. Good news is they're on tonight, so that's probably why more people are here today. Um, It's a joke. But there's diversions, and Satan wants to divert us. And the last is defeat. Some of you come here today a little defeated. Maybe it's not even about the church. Maybe it's about relationships in your home. Maybe it's about your school. But you come defeated, not thinking that there's any possibility for change in your life or somebody else's life. Or you watch the news, which you should not do. Don't watch the news because that will make you defeated in a moment. Defeat brings us to the point where we just want to quit. We want to give up. We don't want to go forward. We don't want to invest in other people's lives. So what's the point? Nothing's going to change. We give up. And part of the giving up is quitting. But there's another aspect to the giving up, and it's simply complacence. We stop caring. We stop investing. We become complacent. We kind of go through the motions of life, and that's Satan's plan to make you think that there's no difference you can make or that can be made in your life. To break his evil plan, we must persevere in Christ. His goal is to get you to give up on God. To not trust God. Satan's first temptation of Eve, to paraphrase, was kind of like this. He told Eve, you can't trust what God says. Go ahead, stop believing him. He's withholding the best from you. Do it your way. And she heard all of that which encompasses all the five deadly deeds. Look at it. Um, 
Can I ask you a question? Are you at a place where you feel like giving up on God? Going through the motions, yeah, I'm here, but, you know, God's really not going to make a big difference in my life. Jesus loves me and he died for me, but how does he help me to live today? Are you ready to give up? Are you ready to quit the race? Are you simply going through the motions? God has something more for you. And when we choose to persevere, he has blessings in store, not only for you, but for the people that are around you, because you can make a difference in people's lives. 2 Thessalonians verses, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is kind of a scripture that a lot of times you read in your Bible and you just go, oh, that's the introductory thing, it's not that important. But I want to share with you four things about characteristics of a church, a healthy church. And the first one is simply this, church, keep gathering. It is so important for the church to keep coming together, to keep meeting to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing little thing here. One key word is simply the word church, ecclesia. It means the called out ones. God calls us out of this world into himself. He makes us part of his body, an inheritance, his children. The word ecclesia is in the Bible a hundred times. It's an important word, and it just simply means church. We are the church, the body of Christ, called out of this world to live a different life, to portray Christ to a world that desperately needs him, the called out ones. It's an interesting phrasing in this verse. It says the church of the Thessalonians. It doesn't say the church at Thessalonica. It says the church of the Thessalonians. We need to understand that the church is us. It's we, we are the church, the people. And I went through a lot of talking this morning about, you probably cost me time, <laughs> but I grew up about a mile and a half that way. Um, it's called Cherville Heights. Grew up there. We had an identity crisis. Nobody knew where we lived, didn't know what, who were we. It's Shareable Heights. It's got a Crown Point address, St. John phone number. We live in St. John Township. We are lost. We have no idea where we are. And people would ask back then, back before there was like millions of people living here, uh, where do you live? Well, we live in Shareable Heights. Where's that? Well, it's out in the middle of a cornfield. That's all I got. But we are the people of this area. We're the church of this area. My, my church currently is meeting and finishing worship not more than two miles away from here. But we're part of the body of Christ. We're the church of this area. And it's kind of a cool thing to know that we do that together in Christ. One of the beautiful things is that God is a part of every church that worships him and trusted Jesus as their savior. He's a part of every church. And when we worship together, he is with us. 
We come into the very presence of God when we gather together. His presence is here with us. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. When you gave your life to Christ, he came in, took residency in you, and the Holy Spirit came and sealed you until the day of redemption. Paul goes on and says, you are not your own. From that point on, you are God's. You are his child. You are his, his possession. But you also are a member of the body of Christ. And you have a responsibility and a joy of being incorporated into the fellowship of other believers. And that comes with responsibilities and privileges of being the body of Christ. The Gospels, the epistles primarily, are, are written to individuals through churches. Every letter is addressed to the church at Thessalonia or, or of Thessalonia, of Ephesus, at Ephesus. But it is given to a church corporately, but it's fleshed out individually. As individual members of that church take on the teachings and incorporate them into their daily lives, and then we incorporate them together, we become the church that God has envisioned for us. We take that truth and we flesh it out among each other. One of the things you guys are starting, your, is it life groups? I forgot. Life groups. You're starting those li the life groups. You're having a meeting tonight. Very excited about it. It's a wonderful process. And in that process comes the taking the word of God and fleshing it out together in a group. It's a powerful thing, and it creates uh, intimacy with God and with each other that you really can't get in this format. It's important to be a part of that, and I encourage you to do that. In Matthew 18, 20, it says, For where two or three are gathered in his name, there I am with you. Two or three. We've got more than that here today, right? Is God here? Yes, he is. Let me ask you a question. Why did you come to church today? What did you expect? Did you expect to have an encounter, a personal encounter with the living God through Christ? through every aspect of this service, through every aspect of our interaction with each other, did you come expecting to meet Jesus, to have a life-changing encounter today? Sometimes as Christians, we kind of go, well, that happened a long time ago. I'm done. I don't need any more. But we absolutely need to experience Christ every day. We need to see and hear his voice every moment. And when we gather together, when three or more are gathered together in his name, he's there, we should be experiencing his presence. It's his music, it's his word, it's his worship, it's his fellowship. Did you come anticipating encountering the living God today? 
Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. I believe with all my heart we're living in the last days. I think the signs are really evident. I, I mean, don't watch the news, read some, but the signs are really evident what's happening in, the, in this world and how it's deteriorating and the things that are coming. Jesus talked about it. There are many signs that are coming. As the day comes, we have to set our priorities to key in on what Jesus would have us to do. And one of the things that you have us to do as the body of Christ is keep gathering, keep being together, keep worshiping, keep encouraging one another, keep praying, keep believing that God is real and that he's here and he's working. Don't quit. Don't quit. Persevere. The second thing, church, keep growing in faith. We have to grow in our faith. In verse 3, it says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. Faith is not a noun. It's a verb. It's something that we do. It's often translated faithfulness. We believe. We trust. We have confidence in Christ that moves us to act, to believe, to stay in the race and not quit. Our faith is to grow more and more, more and more, exceedingly beyond measure. How's your faith doing? Is it growing more and more? Are you becoming more and more mature in Christ? Are you looking more and more like Jesus? Is your attitude becoming more and more like Jesus? Are you thinking more and more like Jesus? Are his priorities your priorities? Jesus came to the world to save the world. Is that our priority? People are dying because they don't know Jesus. And that's our responsibility to be there, to help people to see, to find hope, because he's given us everything we need. He's given us his son. There's an interesting paradox in the in the. Christian life, and it's the analogy of a child. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 18, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like, a little, like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Little children are faithful, and I get to tell a story about my dad now, which he, I don't know if he remembers this, but when I, we were living in Gary, and one day, um, I got in a lot of trouble when I was a kid. I won't go into a lot of details. Uh, generally, I was throwing stuff through windows. I had a really good arm. I could throw a long way. And I always tried to test it, and it ended up going through a window someplace. But I also liked to climb. And one day, I climbed the fence and climbed on top of the garage. And 
And you know, climbing up is fun. Climbing down, not fun. So I got up there and um, found out I was stuck. I was not going to try to go down. It w I had to climb up a fence. I, was, I wasn't going to do that. And I yelled for mom. And mom said, well, I don't know what you're going to do. I can't get you down. You'll have to wait until dad comes home. And I said, okay. And I sat up there. I don't know how long I sat up there. You know, when you're six or seven years old, you think you're sitting up there for, you know, like days. But I sat up there until dad came home. And dad just walked over and said, jump. And I jumped and he caught me. That's childlike faith. No hesitation, jump. And he jumped. That's what God wants us to do with him, to trust him, to learn to jump. Paul gives us another view of child, childlike child. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away, put the ways of childhood behind me. The difference between being childlike and childish is one trusts God, has faith in God. Being childish is being self-centered and having a self-centered attitude. God wants us to grow up and be mature, but always have childlike faith when we're willing to jump and know that he will catch us no matter what things are going on around us. Hudson Taylor, one of my favorite biographies Hudson I read about Hudson Taylor, he was uh, started the Inland China Mission, and he did it completely by faith. Hudson Taylor had this belief that God would supply. He never asked for money. He'd pray for things, but that made life really difficult. He was oftentimes going without food. He was often uh, sick. He lived in poverty um, most of his life. He said this at, at, at one time, I cannot read, I cannot think, I cannot even pray, but I can trust because God is faithful. Some of you are kind of going through the same things. Your spiritual life isn't where it should be. You're struggling. Maybe you're having a hard time getting up and reading your Bible. Maybe you just can't even think about what God wants to do. Maybe you can't even pray about something. I have people in my church that just don't even know how to pray, and we do a lot of moaning because we don't know how to pray. But we know God is always faithful. He's always faithful. And we have to trust him and keep going, keep going. This next one is church, keep, keep loving, keep showing your love. One of the things that sets us apart as the church is behold how they love one another. The more we love each other, the more we portray God. The and Paul wrote, the love all you have for one another is increasing. Our love within the body of Christ should be increasing. And the only way that happens is to get to know people better. You can't love somebody from a distance. You have to get to know them. 
One of the things we have to do in the church is to love people with warts and all. Anybody here got warts in their life? We talk a lot about porcupine people. Anybody got porcupine people? Hard to get close to? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Love. The word that's used here is agape. Unconditional love that demonstrates God's love. And it really can be translated a love feast. The body of Christ, madly in love with Jesus, becomes madly in love with people, especially of the household of faith. 1 John 14, 19 through 21 says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he is, he, and he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sisters. When it says here, hates his brothers and sisters, that's a pretty tough line. It's hard to read. And some of us look at it and go, oh boy, I might be in trouble here. Especially when you hear what the, the word hate really means. It's kind of a progression of things. When we think about, I, do you hate anybody? When you think, oh, I, I don't hate anybody. Do you detest someone? I mean, there are some people I don't like being around. Anybody else? Come on. Come on. Man, only like seven honest people here. Um, but it also means love less, esteem less. God wants us to love each other. Why? Because he's love. One of the things that happens in, in the world is we, we try to define, the, define God in the way he should love. We think that if God has to meet certain standards that we think are God's love for him to, to be really a loving God. One of those standards that I've heard, in fact, just read something about it, about it I won't tell you who, is I don't believe a loving God could send someone to hell. How can a loving God do that kind of thing? It's because we're trying to define God with the love the way we look at it. But we need to understand that God defines love. And it's his love that matters. His love is unconditional. He loves us an agape kind of love. He loves us unconditionally. One of my favorite verses is Romans 5 eight. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. He died for us. His love is unconditional, but his love demands a response. And that response is to accept the Christ who died for us, Jesus, who died for us. He loves us so much he gave his life so that we could know him. But it's something we have to respond to. It's something we have to do. Never give up. Never give up. Keep persisting. Church, number D, actually, actually letter D. Church, keep enduring. Second Thessalonians 1.4. 
Therefore, among the churches, we boast about you, about your perseverance and faith in all the persecution and trials you're enduring. You read Thessalonians 1 and 2, you'll find out that Thessalonians were going through really difficult times. They were serving Christ and in a very short amount of time were being persecuted mercilessly by Jews and by fellow Thessalonians. They were going through a really difficult time. And Paul said, listen to this, Paul says, among, therefore among the churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all your persecution. How do you do when things aren't going well? Do people go and say, look how great they're doing, even through all the persecution they're going through? That's what Paul did for the church at Thessalonica. Paul used in 1 Corinthians 13 three words, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. In Thessalonians, he talks about faith, love, and hope. He changes the, the, uh, the order. Um, faith reaches up to God in response to his grace. Love reaches out to others in response to that grace. Hope looks forward to a future regardless of circumstances. God wants us to keep looking forward because our hope is in Christ and not in this world and not the circumstances of this world. Perseverance is the ability to keep moving when you're tired, to keep moving when you're beaten, keep moving when you don't think you can move anymore. In John 16, it says, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. God wants us through Christ to have peace. Jesus wants us to have peace. But then he goes on and says, in this world, you'll have trouble. Here's peace. Here's trouble. You're going to have both. How many people think that doesn't fit? Jesus thinks it fits perfectly. In this world, you'll have me because then you, when you have me, you'll have peace. But you'll also be in a world full of trouble. And he says, but take heart. He has overcome the world. And because he overcame the world, you overcome the world. You have strength that flows through you through the Holy Spirit that makes you more than overcomers because Christ has overcome the world. The Bible has lots of promises. In this verse, there are three. He promises you that you're going to have peace. He promises you you're going to have troubles. And he promises you that you're going to have victory. Because he's already won it. You can't avoid troubles in this life. Circumstances come. There are so many things that are completely out of our control. And people who try to control things aren't. One thing we have control over in this life is how we respond to the difficulties of life, how we respond. James says in 1, 1 James 2 and 3, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And I know most people read that and go, Really? 
consider it joy when you're going through really difficult times? Everybody stands up and goes, yay, God, this is tough. I really, I'm really happy this is happening. No. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing your faith produces perseverance. It goes on and says, and perseverance produces maturity. The word consider here is to think, to think about it, to be of an opinion. One of the things that happens when we're going through difficult times is we tend to think about the difficult time and not think about what God is doing in the difficult time. God has a plan. When we decide to consider, to think, we're saying, okay, God, what's your plan? What do you want to do through this trial, through this testing, through this temptation? How are you going to turn this to joy and perseverance and maturity? God wants us to understand that he works through everything in every situation in our life. He's always working, even in the most difficult times when things we don't understand. Joseph, in the Old Testament, was hated by his brothers, and they had every right to not like him because Joseph was a spoiled brat. Anybody read the story? I know I'm, you know I'm telling the truth, right? Joseph was spoiled. His dad loved him and made sure all the rest of his 11 brothers knew it. And so the brothers got tired of his special treatment and got tired of his arrogance, and they decided that they would, well, they thought about killing him first, and they said, eh, we better not do that. Dad might get really mad about that. So instead, they sold him into slavery. They sold him into slavery, and he went to Egypt where things didn't go real well for, for Joseph for a long time, really long time. But Joseph stayed faithful. He grew up. He matured. He understood that perseverance that testing produced perseverance and perseverance maturity, and he grew up, he matured in, in the Lord. He never gave up on God in the midst of all that. His brothers came because they needed help, and Joseph had taken Egypt and turned it into a prosperous country that you know, live out a, a famine. They came for food. They found Joseph, the leader, the, the guy they sold into slavery, and they found their brother standing there before him. And this is what Joseph said. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Sometimes we get wrapped up in the difficulties of our life, and there's real difficulty. Don't. Don't pretend they're not. But God's working. And out of those difficult times, he is not only saving your life, but he's going to save others. Because out of your mess comes your testimony, and that testimony can transform life. Because we know God is faithful. And when we're going through difficult times, we see his faithfulness. And sometimes we don't see it until we look back. Well, we must press on. One of my favorite verses is Philippians 3.14. I have a lot of favorite verses out of Philippians. 
It says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. I press on. I press on. I press on. And I ask you today to press on.